Hey guys, and welcome to the Hunt and Land Podcast, where we cover rut reports, waterfowl migrations, land market dynamics, habitat management, and anything else that the American landowner or wannabe landowner might want to know. I'm sitting next to Clint Flowers. He's a landowner. How you doing today, Clint? I'm good. How you doing, Jeff? Man, I'm fired up. This weekend, we got opener of rifle season in Alabama. You just attended the opener of duck season down in Louisiana. In a couple of weeks, we got duck season opening up in Alabama and Mississippi. Things are getting right. My favorite time of year, man. There's so much to do. It's, I wish I could just put work on pause for three months. Absolutely. Looking forward to getting out there, enjoying this cold weather we finally got. I know. As I was walking in today, I noticing just it's just nasty outside. and just makes me want to get out there even more. It's drizzling rain, overcast, cold. I think most people complain when it's like that, but it fires me up. So That's right. Well, let's talk about those ducks a little bit. we got Tom Mormon. He's the chief scientist with Ducks Unlimited. Tom? What's going on in the Mississippi Flyway? How are our ducks doing? Uh, well, migration's well underway. See, I don't even know where to start on that. About October, I was up in Saskatchewan and right at the tail end of things. And we actually watched birds leave. Things were freezing up and they were getting some snow. So birds got pushed out of Canada mostly by October, say October 20th or so. Then, you know, down here, we're always kind of on the tail end of that migration. So we're still waiting on a lot of them, but some of them have started to show. Gulf Coast of Louisiana did open up last weekend, and I heard it was pretty slow, uh, mostly across the, the coast. The state of Louisiana flies waterfowl survey. The numbers were, in fact, down. Uh, I don't attribute that necessarily to a population issue. I think it's probably more of a migration timing issue. Uh, birds being what they are, you know, it takes weather to push them. If they got open water and food, they're going to hang north. And so we're sitting here today and I'm looking out my window here in Memphis and it's snowing. So what I'm looking for is a push of birds here maybe this week. Yeah, I know Mississippi and Alabama both open uh, right after Thanksgiving. Uh, hopefully, we get the, that coincides nicely with the arrivals and birds, maybe some gray ducks, some ringneck ducks. I had a couple ringneck ducks on our little pond here at our headquarters this morning. So I think things are, are progressing maybe pretty normal, but maybe a little late. But, you know, that's been more and more common here over the past 10 or 15 years is we don't really seem to get maximum numbers of birds till sometime, at least in my part of the world, sometime around Christmas. And then January is always you know, pretty steady and pretty good. So, But hopefully, even with the opening weekend, there'll be some teal around, maybe some gadwalls and, of course, wood ducks will, will maybe cooperate a little bit. So hunters should get out there and give it a shot. Well, Tom, how are these seasons decided? We've got you know different openers for different states, but ducks are federally regulated right so just what what all goes into establishing those those dates yeah um so basically what happens in a nutshell and it's a bit of a long involved process but you're right the, the fish and wildlife service has the ultimate authority on migratory birds and so what they have to do number one they have to declare the season open um that's because it's under treaty and so they declare an open season and they provide an individual flyway in this case the mississippi uh, they'll offer up to 60 days for duck hunting. States then can select their days between 1 October and right now the last Sunday of January. And they can select their 60 days within that. They can split seasons, so on and so forth. 
most of the state biologists are pretty good about trying to time those days with migration and historical and normal arrival of, of peak numbers of birds in their state. Hence, Alabama opens late as do all the southern flyway states, and they go to basically what we would call the end of the framework, which is the end of January, more or less. And within that, you know, you get your recommended, the service recommends an allowable bag limit. This year, it's six birds for this flyway, and there'll be a few species uh, restrictions in there, you know, not more than two hen mallards, one pintail, that kind of thing. Um, but that's basically how it happens. So it's really a, a cooperative effort between the states and the Fish and Wildlife Service. So you're saying it's simple? Well, it's a lot simpler than it used to be, but it's not <laughs> that's simple. That's good. Yeah. Well, I know in our area we shoot a lot of wood ducks, and I actually got into a bit of a friendly argument last weekend with a friend of mine that I affectionately refer to as a Cajun down in Plaquemines Parish about whether or not wood ducks migrate. And uh, can, you, yeah. can you enlighten us on that and let me know who won? Oh, well, depending on what you told him, um, they do, in fact, migrate. What ends up happening with wood ducks is, of course, in a state like Alabama, we have a really strong, stable resident population of wood ducks. And so Alabama grows some of its own wood ducks. But then there's a segment of the population that arrives in Alabama from points north and wood ducks, of course, are grown basically from southern Ontario down through Minnesota all the way over to Maine. And so you could drive birds from almost anywhere in that northern segment of that population that do, in fact, migrate because most of that country, of course, is going to turn to hard frozen water and snow cover here if it hadn't already. And so wood ducks are usually some of the earlier migrants to get on out of there. And so basically what you'll see is your resident population will, it may not double, but it's going to increase dramatically as birds move further and further south with the onset of harsher winter conditions. So yeah, you get both. If you shoot a banded wood duck, you know, it's always, it's always interesting when that happens. Sometimes it's banded, you know, it might be last time I shot a banded wood duck, it was from Wisconsin. But then last year, I was with a friend of mine hunting in Mississippi, and he shot one, and it was banded at the refuge about four miles away. So, <laughs> so you just never know. But it's still cool, of course, to kill a banded bird anytime. But, yeah, we get both. Is uh, That was a long answer, to, a, but that's the short answer. They do migrate, and hunters down here get a crack at migrants as well as resident birds. Well, I'm only going to tell him yes, which means I was right. There you go. Hopefully that was a $20 bet. Well, Tom Mormon with Ducks Unlimited. Tom, thanks for giving us the uh, the Flyway report. Uh, we'll be checking back in with you throughout the season. I hope you uh, are going to get out there over Thanksgiving if we don't talk to you before then. Enjoy your holiday. I hope you uh, get out there and cut them down. All right, guys. Talk to you later. Okay, bye. All right, Clint. Well, you had a chance to do a little, uh, little waterfowl hunting down in Louisiana this past weekend. How'd it go? It was great. It always beats being at home with nothing to hunt or fish. Opening morning was great. We limited. It was a high wind. The second morning, we had a good hunt. Did not limit. Saw a lot of high birds. I think the wind moved them around the marsh a little. Mostly uh, gadwalls down there? Gadwall, teal. Had a few spoonbill in there, and we closed out with a few uh, dogree. Okay. The, the venerable spoonbill. They always oh, yeah. get you excited. You think you got a mallard coming in, and then it's a spoonie. Yeah. The old smiling mallard. Right. All right. Well, good. I love to hear those waterfowl reports, man. I don't get to do it enough, but... Danger fires me up. Let's switch gears a little bit and let's talk about the rut. You know, we've talked about how Alabama is so unique in that we've got seven different rut zones in the state, uh, which which basically means that a, a hunter who is willing to travel can hunt the rut from 
the first weekend of bow season until the last weekend of rifle season. So at, at every point in the in the season, there's a deer rutting somewhere in the state. And uh, today we're talking with Matt Brock. Matt, where are the deer rutting right now? Well, right now they seem to be getting pretty geared up around Black Warrior WMA. So you you talked last week uh, about your prediction for the weekend. We had some nice a nice cold front come through. How did uh, how'd your prediction work out? Well, we had eleven bucks brought to the check station on the early rifle hunt. Several of those were were very good mature bucks. A couple of the hunters said that they were chasing does. Most of them were just up cruising, looking around for for does. But they also had very dark tarsals and had begun you know rutting behavior. Talking about cruising a little bit. Those deer are going to be moving, bucks are going to be moving the most before they actually hit peak breeding. Is that correct? That has been what I have seen, yes. Because once they hit peak breeding, they are basically staying with that doe until she's ready. So on Black Warrior there, what are you finding in relation to conception dates? Okay, so our our average conception date is typically somewhere between Thanksgiving and the first week of December. Um, so the bucks right now are in that early seeking cruising phase. Now we do have does going into estrus the first and second weeks of November. So they're trying to locate those first few does, but it's really going to pick up in the next week or two. Matt, there on Black Warrior, you guys have a lot of topography, right? That is correct. Yes. How can a guy use topography to his advantage, uh, when these, when these bucks are up and cruising? Well, a lot of these successful hunters there will locate travel corridors between bluff lines or or very tall ridges. There's a lot of creeks in Black Warrior WMA, and above those creeks, you'll typically have a bluff line that drops off very abruptly, and it makes it impossible for for most animals to uh, travel between one ridge to the other. So if you can locate a travel corridor there, maybe where a bluff line eases down, um, where it's not quite so steep, and you can see where the deer and the other animals are using that. That would be a, a, an excellent place to set up for an all-day sit. Now, there in Black Warrior, you've got essentially a uh, peak breeding is coming right up, so imagine you've got uh, probably the majority of your activity right now going into the open and weekend of rifle season, which is pretty cool. But let's talk about the rest of the state, which is going to be mostly in a pre-rut Mm-hmm. What do you really look for in a in a pre-rut scenario in terms of your best chance of killing a, a mature whitetail? Well, what I generally do the first week of season uh, is, is keep in mind that there has been very little pressure other than some archery hunters and some youth hunters being in the woods. Uh, not a lot is taking place. I generally try to go to a food source. Uh, I, I also run a lot of cameras. I, I try to figure out where deer are going to be feeding at certain times of the day. Food plots in the evenings have been an excellent place to find a mature buck early on in the season. Uh, Also, if there are any acorns that are left, um, acorns are always high on the list of preference for deer this time of year. So I I generally go with food plots in the evening, acorns in the morning. Matt, I have tried rattling in all different times of the year, and i got to be honest, I've never rattled in a whitetail. Me either. Yeah. (laughs) I've tried a lot. I think all I do is scare them off. Yeah, yeah. I, I've had very similar experiences. Um, I've rattled quite a bit in Alabama. And, you know, early season, I do some light tickling with the antlers. And, and just, you know, you've seen bucks that are sparring and pushing each other around early in bow season. Uh, they generally don't get too aggressive. So I try to mimic that. And I've seen a few deer early in the year. Uh, but I can sit here and honestly tell you, I have never called in 
a buck in the state of Alabama with antlers. What about other parts of the country? Uh, it seems to work in areas that have much uh, better age structure uh, and sex ratios. It works very well in the Midwest. I've hunted in Kansas a couple times, and uh, although I didn't kill a deer that I rattled in, I did rattle in some mature bucks and, and, and several younger bucks. What do you mean by those ratios you mentioned? Well, the uh, competition for receptive does is much greater in areas that have a, uh, a more balanced sex ratio. And I know, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about going to the Midwest and they see so many deer and they think that, I guess they interpret that to mean they have more deer or higher deer density than we do in the Southeast. And it's just not the case. Uh, the deer are just more readily visible because of the terrain and the habitat. But when you get out there, you know, you've got a, a much more mature age structure as far as the bucks are concerned. Uh, there's more mature bucks on the landscape than there are here. And I think that, you know, that always equates to more competition for, for receptive does. Well, Matt, it's opening weekend of rifle season starting up this weekend. And I know a lot of folks are going to be coming to the wildlife management areas to hunt. Any advice uh, as we go into the opener? Yeah, just uh, I would just stay safe, you know, hang in there. I know sometimes the, the opening day crowds can be discouraging, but actually it gets deer on their feet moving around. And uh, I would encourage people to sit as long as they possibly can, because when people begin coming out of the woods, at, you know, usually between 830 and 10 o'clock, most of your hunters are going to come back to the truck. Um, and that's when a lot of deer get killed is between 10 and 12 o'clock in the morning. All right. That's Matt Brock with the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. Matt, thanks a lot. Stay safe out there this weekend. All right. Thank you. you thanks, too. Matt. All right, guys, we love hearing those rut reports every week. And let's move on to our next topic. And our guest, got Chuck Sykes on the line here to help us dig in and understand the uh, economic importance to hunting to the U.S. and also the uh, current status of CWD in Alabama. Talk about Alabama first. Uh, we're looking at about $1.1 billion spent annually with 535,000 people hunting in Alabama each year. Of those hunters, we've got about 44,000 that are out of state. And we spend over $357 million on hunting equipment, which my wife would agree with. We also spend an average of about 1700 a year per hunter. And I don't know who those guys are. I spend a lot more than that. Yeah, no kidding. With about $104 million in state and local taxes contributed to that. And overall, we've got a $1.8 billion ripple effect. $1.8 billion with a B? That's right. So, you know, Chuck, I think... You know, it's obvious that hunting plays a, a very important role in the economy. And we've just found out that there's been two or three cases of chronic wasting disease in Mississippi now. Is that right? There have been two that have been confirmed by the NVSL in Ames, Iowa. A third has been diagnosed by Mississippi, and they have sent it off to Ames for final confirmation, but they're pretty sure. So you might as well say there's been three confirmed cases in Mississippi so far this year. Well, that's that's really scary. I'm sure it's uh, at this point it's really a matter of time before a case shows up in Alabama, but I know you guys are doing everything you can to prevent that from happening. I, I want to shine a little bit of light on chronic wasting disease because I think a lot of folks don't understand what it is, and how, it, how it's transmitted. And there's, there's a case study out there. In 2016, there's a four-county area in Wisconsin that is the hotbed for chronic wasting disease. In 2016, 32,000 whitetails were killed by hunters in those counties. They 
tested around 3,000 of those deer, and of those, 17% tested positives for CWD. So what does that mean? That means around 5,000 or so deer left, potentially left the state of Wisconsin that were infected with CWD. So Chuck, that's scary to me because the hunters that killed those deer represent 49 of the 50 states. In the yeah, I use that slide in, in all of my seminars when, when discussing about CWD because that drives home the fact that Alabama and I think 25 or 26 other states have carcass ban regulations that prohibit hunters from bringing the carcass of a harvested deer back into their state unless it's been deboned and caped out and the skull played off where you're trying not to bring any of those infectious agents back into your home state. So and Chuck, that, that map proves the, the importance of that regulation. So these carcass bands, uh, the CWD is transmitted through d- the different tissues. I think it's like the brain, spinal cord, eye, spleen, uh, lymph nodes. I mean, if you've, if you've butchered a deer, You've seen those little gray things in there that have a bunch of fat around them. That's a lymph node. And, you know, if you're bringing deer back through, potentially you're bringing infected tissues back into the state. So it's a it's a carcass ban. Does that mean no part of the deer can come back? No, it, it's pretty simple. The main concentrations are found in the brain, the spinal column, and long bones. So just like if you harvest an elk on a mountain you debone it out and you cape it out before you bring it down alabama deer hunters and most deer hunters are not used to doing that they're not accustomed to it they're used to maybe field dressing it throwing it on their truck and then carrying it to a process right right all right so we've got to rethink how we do things now so just like an elk or a moose right if you harvest a white tail debone it leave all the bones, the long bones, leg bones, and all that, leave it where you kill the deer. Cape it all the way out, cut the skull plate off where you're not bringing any spinal column or any brain tissue back, and then you can have your local processor process your meat if you just bring back deboned meat, and you can have your local taxidermist mount your trophy for you. You just have to take one extra step. And yeah, it's an inconvenience. I hunt out of state, it's going to inconvenience me too. But do you really want to be that one person that was too lazy to do it right and have a negative impact on a billion-dollar industry in the state of Alabama? I don't. And not only a billion-dollar industry, but on a – people like to call hunting a sport. I, I don't – I know how you grew up, and I know how I grew up, and hunting is a way of life for me. Absolutely. It's not just a it's not just a sport. It's not just a thing I do, you know, like playing golf or something like that. It's more important to me than, you know, the, the economic impacts. It's just it's a, it's a heritage. And Well, unfortunately, though, in the world that I'm in right now, you've got to equate it back to dollars for the state. Right. And that's that's what I try to tell people at these seminars. This is not a stalk hunter versus dog hunter issue. Right. This isn't a deer breeder versus non-breeder, high fence versus no fence. Really and truly, CWD is not even a hunting issue. It is a state of Alabama issue that's got wide-reaching ramifications not only to what you're talking about, our way of life, and for 
many of us, we've based a whole career on managing wildlife. So it, it's who we are. But then even people who don't hunt, never bought a license, never harvested an animal, it still has a ripple impact on their life if they live in Alabama. So, so this is an Alabama issue. If this hit home for us and decimated our populations, how long would it take to recover? Well, see, that's it now. I'm, I don't want people to think that if CWD hits, we're never going to deer hunt again. It's going to kill all the deer. That's not the case. And that's one thing that aggravates me about dealing with this issue. I want people to fight me on the facts. Right. Not what they believe, not what they read on Facebook, but the facts. If you come at me with facts, we can reach an agreement. But just knee-jerk reactions and misinformation, that's when I have a problem with it. So let me get this straight. There's been people dealing with CWD since 1967. Their deer herds are not decimated. They're still hunting deer. However, the normal changes. You mentioned Wisconsin. They first found CWD in 2002. And this isn't information that Chuck made up. It's documented. That first year, they had 11% decrease in firearms license sales, equated to about $60 million. Okay, now it rebounded some but it never got back to the normal before CWD hit. All right, that's a big deal, 11% decrease. So talk about how, because a lot of people don't realize how that works. Okay. When license sales go down, when firearm sales go down, how does that affect conservation? How does that affect wildlife? Each state is different. We hosted the Southeastern Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies annual meeting in Mobile a couple of weeks ago, where counterparts from all over the Southeast come in. We probably had 650 people there. And that was a question that my, my law enforcement chief asked his counterpart in Arkansas. You know, they've got a high prevalence of CWD up in northern Arkansas, relatively new, only been around for three or four years. They said, how's it impacting your license sales? I I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, you know, we're mainly a duck hunting state, and we get one-eighth of 1% sales tax, so really and truly, it doesn't matter. All right, we don't receive anything from the state general fund. We receive money from people buying hunting and fishing licenses and the federal excise dollars from Pittman-Robertson and Dingle-Johnson. So any hit in license sales negatively impacts us directly. And last year, y'all, Clint quoted those numbers of how many people hunt in Alabama. Out of that 500 and some odd thousand, only about 170 to 200,000 of them actually bought a license. Okay, so last year, less than 4% of Alabama residents bought a hunting license. That's that's what we are providing. Yeah, that's what we're providing services to every citizen of the state. Right. Natural disasters and things like that, we're out there helping everybody, whether they buy a license or not. And hunters and fishermen are the only ones paying for our services. So we can't afford a 2% decrease, much less 11% decrease. Right. And that's how... The face of our agency will change forever. And that's important to make that, that distinction that, you know, a lot of times people really don't follow the dollar and see how... 
something like CWD, it doesn't affect the guy whose deer herd declines. Um, even if it's in a, it's going to affect the entire state, affect the entire country. So, you know, talking about hunter numbers, which is really what that, those license sales boil back mm-hmm. down to, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about a, another problem that we've got in the hunting community. And that's that our hunter numbers are, are going down. So Chuck, tell me a little bit about where we are in terms of hunter numbers and where, where we've been. Tell me about that decline. Well, it, it's not just a, an Alabama issue. This is a nationwide issue. The average age of a hunter nationwide, I think, is either 56 or 57 years of age. And we're not recruiting younger hunters to backfill. You mentioned it earlier. You and I grew up doing it. It is a way of life. Times have changed. It's not a way of life for people anymore. Not like it was for us. With hunter numbers declining, that means less money coming in to provide services and to manage wildlife that we all love. Right. So we are trying to remain relevant with the 80% of the people that approve of hunting as long as it's done fair chase, but may not hunt. Right. We're trying to stay relevant with them and let them understand that if they like bird watching, if they like canoeing and hiking and enjoying nature, odds are a hunter or a fisherman paid for the management that they're enjoying right now. And I mean, Joe, that's a hard sale. Well, there is something that folks can do if they want to be a part of the solution, and that's mentor programs. I've been, you know, the light's kind of been switched on for me that I think the the knee-jerk reaction to declining hunter numbers and the the increase in the age of the average hunter is, well, we got to get more kids involved. And... I'm certainly going to involve my my children in the outdoors, but what I've learned is that taking a kid outdoors, while it's a great thing to do, and I certainly recommend people do it, that really doesn't create a hunter uh, unless that kid's parents are hunters. So this weekend, we got the opening weekend of rifle season coming up. I'm going to be uh, participating in the adult mentored hunting program that the state puts on. So explain to me about the adult mentored hunting program that you guys put together and why it's so important to mentor an adult instead of a child. Well, look, everybody's seen the commercials. Everybody's seen the ads. Take a kid hunting and fishing. Been doing that for decades. Our department has been doing it. Well, like you said, if that was working, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's a good thing, but if our job is to recruit hunters, it isn't working, and you've got to step back and evaluate where your time and energy is going, because if we don't recruit more hunters, we're non-existent. So we had to step back and evaluate all of our programs, and what we found with our youth programs is that the youth that were participating had parents that hunted. They were going to be hunters anyway. So, yes, it was a good thing. We were were providing them additional opportunities, and that's always great. And we're not going to stop that. However, if we wanted to create new hunters, we were going to have to quit going to that same well. We were going to have to reach outside, think a little bit differently, and go after a different target audience. And that's why we decided to do our adult mentored hunting program. 
and is targeting people from 19 years old and up. These are young adults that maybe did not have an opportunity to hunt as a child, or like some of the things that we've seen, were taken hunting as a child, but their parents, one, either wasn't financially able to help them foster that love of the outdoors or didn't want them to. So that kid had a great one-day hunt somewhere, but they couldn't continue that, that journey. So now they're old enough. They're making their own decisions. They've got money that they can do what they want to. They are wanting to learn how to hunt. So we're providing them an avenue to do so. This year, in the first six weeks of registration being open, we had over 250 applications from seven states wanting to come in to learn how to hunt. And the average age was 42 years old. Wow. That's great. And not only so, those people, not only are those people going to learn how to hunt and they're going to buy licenses, which is going to help conservation as a whole, but if they're coming from seven different states, those people are spending money on fuel, they're spending money on lodging, they're spending money on food. Those are all things Absolutely. that help every person in the, in the state, not just hunters. That's right. And that's why I'm saying hunting is an Alabama issue, period. We had one lady last year that came up from Orlando, Florida, single mother of two. She came up and met, met us at Cedar Creek there in Dallas County for a one-day squirrel hunt. A one-day squirrel hunt. She drove up on Friday night, spent the night in Selma, stayed in the woods with us all day Saturday, stayed in Selma Saturday night, and drove eight hours back to Florida on Sunday. Not everybody. We take for granted the access that, that a lot of us have and, and we're, uh, the exposure we were given as children and just the multitude of opportunities we have, but we forget about the people that not only um, don't have the access but are just intimidated. I mean, you, I think – I know I take for granted how much goes into hunting. You don't realize it because you just got your – you got all your gear. You've got your truck yep. set up. You know, you can just run out there and hunt and no big deal. And there's things – it's things that we've accumulated over a lifetime. Sure. So imagine as a as a thirty year old starting from scratch. It it is intimidating. One thing that we found last year, I mean, of all the things that we've done, to me this is the most rewarding program that my staff has participated in because people actually say thank you and mean it. Right. These people understand the commitment that we're putting into it, the time and effort and all the gear that we're providing a lot of these people to help them get started. But not only that, it was a it was a wake up call for a lot of us. One of the guys that I mentored last year was in his mid 40s. He worked for the University of Alabama in the merchandising department. And I'm sitting in a, a blind with him one afternoon just asking him, you know, why he did it. And he said, well. Everybody that I work with hunts, and I wanted to be able to talk to them intelligently about it. Makes a lot of sense. That was scary because that means people that we go to church with, that we work with every day, that we go to kids' soccer games with, are wanting the opportunity to go, and we never ask them. Right. Yeah. I mean, how many adults do you really think about asking, do you want to go hunting? You know, unless you already know that they're a hunter. And and we have to rethink how we're teaching. Out of everybody that I've taken, 
they're not doing it for the same reason that I did it. That's true. It, you it, know, there's a um, there's a documentary that came out. This is probably, I guess, eight years ago called Food Inc. Have you seen it? It's a I, uh, I, I haven't, but I, I know what you're talking about. It's a documentary that basically it basically just documents the industrialized nature of agriculture and uh, animal husbandry as well. And the animal husbandry ties ties in more. Wherever wherever you fall on that on that side of things doesn't matter. The reality of it is is that there's been a lot of people in the younger generation that have been affected by that knowledge. Uh, you know the knowledge of factory farming, and they've they still want to eat meat, but they want to eat meat that has been raised in a way that they feel is ethical. And one one of the most ethical ways to acquire protein is through hunting, and people have realized that. And that's what's driving a lot of that interest back into hunting. But it's like you said, you've got to reach out to those people and provide access to those folks that don't, they, they don't have a friend that hunts, so they don't have a, a means to do it. So, Well, tell- and again, they're not doing it for why we did. One lady that I hunted with, I mean, I, I've taken hundreds of people throughout my career. I've been very fortunate to take a lot of people hunting. She had to work the process through her mind. Mm-hmm. She didn't get excited. Her blood pressure never got elevated. Where you and I look at a deer coming in with a bow, and I, it can be a 40-pound doe. I get weak in the knees <laughs> thinking that I'm going to get shoot it. it. It was a complete different process that I had to learn a lot on how to answer her questions, how to get her comfortable with the decision that she was fixing to make to take something's life. So it it taught me a lot that I don't really care why people hunt. It can be for that free-range protein. It can be for family tradition. It can be whatever, just getting close to nature. I just want them to be able to hunt, have access to it, have the tools that they need where they can buy a license and enjoy themselves. So I've had to rethink why I'm doing what I'm doing because people that I'm carrying, they're not going out for the thrill of the hunt, for the the desire to match wits with an animal in its backyard. Nah, that's not it for most of these people. That has nothing to do with it. So it's a learning experience for us as well. Well, Chuck, talk a little bit about those opportunities. So tell me a little about a little bit about the mentored hunt programs and how folks can find out more information. And I also want you to talk about the special opportunity areas uh, that the state has instituted, because a lot of those mentor programs occur on those special opportunity areas. Yeah, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, our special opportunity areas are basically smaller WMAs, wildlife management areas that folks are used to talking about. But they're anywhere from four to six, maybe 7,000, 8,000 acres. And we broke them down into manageable units based on roads and SMZs or fire breaks or whatever, that three to 500 acre units. And you go online to outdooralabama.com and you apply for a specific hunt date on a specific SOA. And if you are selected, you and one friend get one of those units for the duration of that hunt. So basically, you've got your own little hunting club for that hunt. So it's not as intimidating with going to a 30,000-acre WMA, finding you a place to hunt, trying to get in there, worried whether somebody's going to walk by you or not. This allows people like myself, who were fortunate enough to have private land growing up that weren't public land hunters, 
It gives them opportunity to test the water in a pretty controlled environment. And for those people that are new and learning, it gives them a lot less intimidating environment to take that first hunt. So a lot of our mentored hunts, as you said, take place on these SOAs. We've designated a few of these units just to have mentored hunts on where we're teaching these these novice hunters how to hunt on a piece of property that they can actually apply for a hunt and be able to hunt themselves. They're not going to a piece of private property that they will never have the opportunity to go back and hunt. This is a piece of state property that they will have the ability to hunt in the future. It's uh, Both programs are new. The adult mentor hunt program is new. The SOA program is new. They are receiving rave reviews. The participation is going through the roof. And I think over the next few years, they are going to be really something that our department can hang its hat on that we made a difference. And all the information is at OutdoorAlabama.com. Well, Chuck, thanks for being on the show today. I know I'm excited this weekend to get out and, and be a part of those those mentored hunts. It's uh, it's always fun to see that ex- new excitement in a in a hunter's eyes. And, and uh, also just thank you and thank Thanks to the department for, you know, creating more opportunities for hunters and being aware of all these issues that are affecting us as a whole. And I I commend you guys for your attempts to bring us all together and and push this forward, you know, because it really does have such a a wide ranging impact, hunters and and beyond that. So thanks again for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for for the the platform and for what y'all are doing to help us spread the right message and the factual message. So we we appreciate that greatly. All right, that's Chuck Sykes with the Alabama Department of Conservation Natural Resources. All right, folks, do you like the show? If you do, subscribe and give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you don't like the show or you'd like us to email it to you, drop us a line at pros at landhunting.com. And remember, that land hunting, no G.